Hello and welcome to episode 75 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Legge. And I'm Peter Lim. And our guest today is Dr. Segibagiba Peter Leguati, Associate Professor of History at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, with research interests in ethnicity, radio, and knowledge production. Dr. Leguati completed his PhD at University of Minnesota, and among his writings are articles in the journal Southern African Studies, in the South African Historical Journal, and chapters in books like Radio in Africa and Inside African Anthropology, Monica Wilson and her interpreters. Peter's current book project is The Crystallization and Bifurcation of Ndebele Ethnicity in South Africa on the formation of Ndebele Ethnicity and the role of popular radio in forging a strong ethnic consciousness. During his stay this semester in Ann Arbor, as a University of Michigan African Presidential Scholar, he will be working with Dr. Adam Ashforth, a previous guest on this podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. Well, earlier today, uh, Dr. Leguadi, uh, you gave a fascinating presentation at the African Studies uh, Noonday Seminar on uh, uh, radio freedom. You've also written extensively on radio and, and Bantustans. I'm interested in knowing a little bit about where your passion for history came and why this uh, focus also on mass media. It's not a typical topic for historians of Africa. Right. Well, I, I come from, I, I grew up in Limpopo province um, uh, of South Africa. Um, that is where I was actually born and I went to school there. But um, as a child, my, uh, my, my grandparents, particularly my grandfather, was a very good storyteller. So, you know, from, from, from my time as a child, you know, I, I, I used to like listening to stories, um, in part because of where I was coming from. In the evenings, would be sitting around the fire, you know, and my grandfather would actually be telling stories. My grandmother, too, told stories. So they told different kinds of stories. So I guess from childhood, you know, I've, I've always had that passion. And I also had an aunt who, who really liked telling stories. And I, you know, I was always curious to know. Um, I'd be sitting in the corner there and absorbing everything that they were telling me. So naturally, when I went to school and, and there was history uh, as part of the learning areas that were offered uh, at school, you know, I, I tended to like that too because it resonated with things that I, you know, I was already used to, stories. So I'd, I found myself being drawn inc increasingly to, uh, towards history uh, at high school and after finishing uh, my high school education going to university, I was drawn, I was drawn into history as well. And uh, <laughs> that passion has not ceased. It's still continuing at the moment. And in the chapter that you published in the edited volume uh, by Liz Gunner, Dina Ligaka, and Dumisani Moyo entitled Radio in Africa, Publics, Cultures, and Communities, you have a very nice essay on uh, radio in uh, the northern part of what was then the Transvaal, yes. um, entitled Bantustan Identity, Censorship, and Subversion on Northern Sutu Radio mm. under Apartheid, 1960s to the 1980s. And I was intrigued by the role of the radio announcers that right. you interviewed and you discussed in this piece. 
uh, as individuals who are shaping public debates and, and identities. And I would love to hear more about these announcers as, as characters, really, as almost like celebrities. Um, right. Can you tell me a little bit about who they were and how you got to them and what knowledge they contributed to your, to your piece? Right. I mean, the, the kind of common stories that you hear about apartheid, it's, it's almost like something that was uh, uh, imposed from above uh, by the, you know, the white um, apartheid government ideologues. Um, as though it didn't have, you know, people that were buying into it um, at some level. And so it, it, it came, this, this, this interest came really as I was looking for, as I was exploring issues of African agency. I mean, you know, the, you know, the, the, issue, the issue of radio really for me, it has always been a puzzle. I mean, uh, and it, you, you're right, you know, radio is, is, is not something that historians naturally, you know, write about. It's more of a media studies, communication studies kind of a topic. But um, when, when I was working on my, you know, doctoral studies, um, and I was looking at issues of identities, and I was beginning to do more work around that, it, it just dawned on me that there's perhaps a, a missing piece that we are not looking at, in, in part because as historians we tend to be drawn to written documents a lot, more so. And, and so that's when I started exploring these questions around, around radio, around media in general. And, um, you know, the, the question for me was, how did it come about that, you know, the radio station that was actually uh, established as a mouthpiece of the apartheid government really became so popular with uh, Africans. I mean, that was a puzzle for me. How did it come about that something that was really meant to keep people down actually ended up being so popular amongst them? And that's when, that's when I started asking questions around, you know, and also recalling from my own lived experiences, like, you know, as I was growing up, how highly radio presenters were, were, were looked at. Just as a, as a little bit of context for those listeners who may not be familiar with the history of radio broadcasting uh, in South Africa, um, say just a little bit about how Northern Sutu Radio, came uh, where these announcers were working, came about. Okay. Just briefly, <clears throat> please. Well, you know, African language radio is, is, is really a product of the 1960s. Not to say that there wasn't any black language radio station. It existed, but it was on a small scale basically in the 1940s as a, as a war measure. And that was called Umsagazo. Um, you know, to try to uh, have black South Africans actually buy into, uh, you know, the, to support the war effort, basically. Uh, but, um, you know, African language radio proper, fully blown African radio, it's a product of the, uh, the 1960s. 1960, exactly, January 1960. That's when uh, it was born as Radio Bantu. And so it was in that January, around January or it's January or June, when the uh, SABC added other language, uh, languages, um, or, or rather brought together these different languages and established one uh, radio stations that catered for 
the different ethnicities. And, and the idea was really about separate development, to have South Africans buy into uh, the Bantustan ideology that Africans in South Africa cannot be citizens of South Africa, but citizens of the various Bantustans. So that if you were Tosa, you'd belong to the Transkei, later the Transkei and the Siskei. If you were Northern Sotho or Bedi, you'd be in Leboa. If you were a Mosotho, you'd be in Kwakwa. If you were a Swazi, you'd be in, in Kangwani. Uh, Venda in Venda, Kazangulu for the for the Tsonga or Shangan and so forth and so forth. So that was the, that was the purpose why these uh, radio stations were built. Uh, but then, you know, clearly the way that um, audiences viewed at this, uh, stations, uh, viewed these stations, it was, it was a different story altogether. Um, th there were things that attracted them to the, to the stations, for example, music. Uh, music and various genres of music were played on these radio stations. You know, you have you have popular music like Mbakanga, which was which was actually being played, but also, you know, um, American music such as jazz, even even soul. You know, uh, all sorts of varieties of music, as well as traditional you know, African music. So this, this, this were different things that actually attracted Africans to, uh, to the radio station, as well as sports, soccer in particular. You know, it would also, uh, you know, attract certain audiences. But most importantly, which is something that um, one of the scholars, in fact, a very prominent uh, scholar of uh, Zulu radio, Liz Garner, has actually written about drama. Drama was, this, this is a mini-series mini radio drama which are broadcast um, in the evenings, uh, usually. Um, the precursors to generation. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and people would, 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 would listen to this thing. So you've got various programs that attract people and, uh, to, to listen to these radio stations. And in, in a context where, um, you know, clearly, for black people to be on, on radio, it was a it was a novel thing. It was a new thing. It was it was interesting for uh, for, for for people whose language had never been on radio before to hear their language, uh, to listen to their language on radio, and sometimes to even meet some of these people that are speaking in these radio stations when they go to the to town or to. Uh, to shopping centers and they meet these people. So they become sort of celebrities in that context. But in my, my work, I look at how, in a sense, you know, um, these individuals played some, some role uh, in terms of the, uh, the development of uh, a particular sense of their ethnicities, which were, which were not necessarily uh, the same way that the, the government necessarily uh, thought about initially. And I also talk about how through their agency they could actually um, make it difficult uh, for you know, the, uh, the, the, the management, the white management of the radio stations to have absolute control. Uh, in, a, in, in a sense, uh, I'm saying that you know, the, the, there is some way in, the, in which these radio stations um, could could be used in a subversive way, even even though that happened on a very limited scale, because of the 
you know, the consequences um, which you would face if you, if you were arrested. So there were individuals who did not necessarily agree with apartheid. And, you know, even though this was their job, um, you know, to, to broadcast, they actually felt that they should not be associated with things that they were supposed to broadcast. And they would want to create a kind of distance between uh, themselves and the messages they were, they were broadcasting. And I give examples of people who would often preface um, the current affair, affairs programs by saying, you know what, um, dear listeners, um, according to the source of the news that I'm about to read to you, or they would say something like, it is said that, or mm. uh, they would say something like, um, you should listen with three ears, you know, which doesn't make sense in English, but if you put it uh, in Northern Soto, use your three ears. What do you use your, th your third ear for? It's, it's to be critical, to be analytical of what you are hearing. So in a sense, you know, this broadcaster is saying, well, we are doing our job here, but we don't agree with these messages. So don't kill the messenger. And this, this becomes important in the context when there's growing um, resistance against apartheid. And if you are seen to be supportive of uh, the apartheid regime, you are often marginalized. That's uh, also a great point about the idioms uh, the sayings, yes. the proverbs uh, in African languages as a historical source. Right. Uh, something that I think really stands out in, in your work mm -hmm. and that I think uh, uh, deserves to be scrutinized much more closely yeah. because we're, we're missing a big part of the story when we're focusing only on the English language yeah, or maybe right. in the case of South Africa, Afrikaans. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and that's, if, if I could just respond to that, in fact, mm -hmm. that's the reason why um, you know, the, the Africana controllers of uh, Northern Sutu Radio didn't allow the use of idioms uh, on the radio stations because there's so much that is hidden there. But by actually insisting that um, no idioms should be used, they were actually, uh, you know, reducing the richness of the language. Mm. They, were, they were actually uh, making it less attractive. Mm. Uh, for the listeners, because you know, idioms make uh, the language really beautiful Less and interesting. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so, when people are in, when when the management was insisting that you know, <laughs> when they are doing those translations of the news, they should be literal trans, uh, they should be translate translated literally. Hmm. Uh, some of the presenters um, had a, had an issue with that because it was really doing away with the richness of the language. But clearly you can see that from the um, controller's perspective, uh, it was really about ensuring that subversive messages are not hidden behind, this, uh, behind these idioms. Because you see this, um, the white controllers uh, could speak and, and, and read uh, African languages, some of them, but they were not cultural insiders. So they really struggled with the idioms. And now when they were being used, and given the history of how idioms were used, especially under Umsagazo in the 50s, they were very, very vigilant. Uh, they wanted to ensure that similar things don't happen where you end up people being incited. Uh, so they wanted to have control, which is why they wanted to have control over the message. 
picking up this uh, theme of uh, incitement or subversion or resistance, um, the nemesis uh, of Bantu radio underpinning apartheid in some ways was of course uh, radio freedom of the African National Congress, the ANC. And um, you spoke today uh, a very uh, fascinating talk at the uh, Michigan State University African Studies Center Eye on Africa series on the topic of uh, radio freedom. Um, briefly, what was the history and the significance of this anti-apartheid radio station? Well, you know, radio, radio Freedom was actually established in, you know, for, for two reasons. One, it was actually a response uh, to the establishment of um, radio, radio Bantu, uh, through which the, uh, the apartheid government uh, would actually be able to dis disseminate its messages. Uh, to Africans in South Africa so that it could have control over the hearts and minds of, 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 of these people. Uh, and, but, but secondly, then you have, you have the, um, the Sharpeville massacre, which, for, which, which came after the, uh, the protest against, against parcels. And, so, and, and that was the turning point in the struggle uh, for liberation in South Africa. Prior to this moment, it had always been a peaceful, you know, uh, resistance against apartheid. But that massacre was actually one of the factors that led to the turn to the armed struggle. Now in the period, well, the, the turn to the armed struggle happened in 1961. And between 1961 and 1963, there's a couple of um, um, bombings that are taking place uh, in South Africa. But none of these bombings actually incited uh, the masses uh, to embark on a revolution. And so the ANC realized that it was probably because it didn't have the means of communicating what it was doing to the people, which actually led to this lack of, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, sort of a follow-up from, mm. from these bombings and then people are rising up mm. against the system. And so the ANC, uh, with its alliance partners, including the South African Communist Party, then decided to launch this radio station, Radio Freedom, as a clandestine uh, radio station because it, co it couldn't exist legally in South Africa because it was propagating messages of a, a banned political party. But this is also at a time when the state would not allow the existence of um, you know, independ independent radio, radio stations. The, you know, this, is, this is a time, actually, even beyond South Africa, when um, colonial governments were in control of the uh, of the of the airwaves. So, um, as a result, you know, radio freedom had to exist within the realm of illegality. It emerges as a as a clandestine radio station. Um, very very uh, quickly, in fact, within two weeks of its uh, initial broadcast, um, you know, the the political leaders. Uh, were arrested, including the broadcasters, uh, at Lilisley Farm uh, in Rivonia, which is just north of Johannesburg. And so it became difficult for this uh, radio station to exist within the country. It, it continued to exist, you know, doing some broadcasts here and there. Uh, I think Raymond Mshaba says uh, in one of uh, uh, the books that uh, biographies about him that, um, you know, at some point he, he broadcast um, uh, you know, he, he, he was involved 
actually some of some of his speeches or address were actually broadcast on Radio Freedom uh, as it existed in the country. But but it was it was quite ineffective also within the context of uh, massive repression in South Africa. Mm. So this station was um, was reborn uh, in exile in Zambia, more specifically, in 1967, when the ANC after the ANC reconstituted itself outside of the country. And so in exile, that's where the, this radio station actually became stronger, and it would uh, it was able to broadcast from various countries. So it would be given uh, some space, some airtime. Um, attached to the uh, state radio stations of a couple of independent African countries. And so, uh, you know, limited time as first, at it's first. Tanzania, Tanzania, uh, later Tanzania. Angola, even Madagascar. Ethiopia, no? Ethiopia. Yes, yes. Ethiopia, Madagascar, Tanzania, Zambia. after Zambia, obviously, which, which were also the headquarters of the ANC. Um, I think Egypt at some point, um, I'm subject to correction, but I think there was some broadcasting taking place there. But what would happen was, the, so, so this ANC was, uh, this radio station was decentralized, and then um, it would be offered 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there, a couple of different places. But ultimately what would be broadcast on within those 15 minutes would be centrally controlled. It would be disseminated directly from the headquarters of the ANC. And the idea, well, broadcasting was, uh, was directed, uh, you know, to South Africa. You know, basically, they were beaming into South Africa, which was difficult to do because, you know, there was um, uh, jamming techniques uh, being used by the apartheid uh, regime. Uh, to make it difficult for people in South Africa to listen to this radio station. And at the same time, if you were caught listening to this radio station, uh, you, you would be arrested because you're listening to an illegal radio station. Um, with severe penalties. With severe penalties, you know, mm -hmm. maximum of eight years mm -hmm. uh, in prison if you were arrested. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, um, uh, people that were really committed to the struggle, people that were active, um, listen to this radio station. You know, the, uh, in the 1970s in particular, the evidence that I've, I've looked at, uh, a, lo a lot of uh, university students um, at, at Fort Hare and, and Telfiob and other places uh, who had access to the uh, banned publications, you know, of the ANC and the SACP were actually able to access this, this station because these uh, journals, these magazines, would provide information um, about how to tune into Radio Freedom. Uh, you should understand that it was, it was actually difficult um, um, then to tune into Radio Freedom because the, the, the radio technology that was available in South Africa was one that was operating on FM-only band, so, 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 so that the the two band radio radio sets that you know that had short wave and medium wave uh, were not uh, were, were, were not were not produced locally in South Africa, and the idea was to uh, you know to eliminate those um, radio sets that would allow South Africans to have access to information, other radio stations 
coming outside of South Africa, which would actually be hostile to South Africa. So that is why you know, uh, manufacturers uh, were required to produce FM only. Uh, that is frequency mod modulation, which had a short range. It was horizontal. And so it, it was not able to pick up stations from far away. But despite all this, you know, people always found ways of um, you know, tuning into this radio station uh, through shortwave um, radio sets. The, the few that were available in the country, you know, some people would infiltrate them into the country, maybe you know, through visits to neighboring countries such as Botswana and Swaziland and other places. When they come back, they would have these radio sets. So then activists would actually be able to tune into uh, Radio Freedom and hear and be connected with the movement in exile. It must be quite a difficult uh, uh, phenomena to, to assess in terms of empirical data, but you've obviously started the process of interviews. And I'm just wondering um, in terms, maybe you could say something about this, this problem of, uh, for the researcher in, in estimating the influence of something so ethereal as a, as a radio yeah. station, but also maybe something about the appeal of the content of the, right. of the music, of the speeches, mm -hmm. and how this may have been picked up and relayed amongst the people in South Africa. Right, right. Well, I mean, it is, it is a very difficult question uh, to, to measure uh, the impact of a radio station such as uh, Radio Freedom. Um, because first of all, it was an illegal radio station. So, and, and, and that meant that, you know, you know there, there wouldn't be any sort of surveys uh, that are conducted on the radio station, uh, which would actually tell you something about how many people are actually listening to this radio station? Uh, but at the same time, if you are, if you, if you are interested in, uh, you know, issues of uh, the effect, I mean, one, one, of the, one of the ways of actually getting, answering that question is to, uh, you know, find people that listen to this radio station, which is what I've, which, which, which is what I've been trying to do. Um, uh, not, not with some, some, some degree of success, I have to say, uh, because it really depends on where you are situated in South Africa. So, so that people that are now occupying uh, you know, influential positions in government always have to check you know, whether they are towing the line and so forth. And, and of course, it's also an issue of you know, who are you? And if you had never really been out there, you know, you're not a card carry member of the ANC, sometimes it does, you know, uh, complicate uh, matters for you because people might not open up. However, people that don't, don't have much to lose, especially those that are feeling more marginalized now, uh, are willing, you know, to talk around some of these issues. But the, the, the long and short uh, answer to, to your question, of course, is that the more you speak to, the, the listeners uh, of this radio station, you, you can begin to have some sense of, you know, how important this radio station was and in what ways uh, it influenced our political behavior. And of course, by asking those kind of questions about, you know, how, you know, how did this radio station actually affect the way that you, you behave? And I've been asking those kind of questions 
uh, which tells me something about the impact of this radio station. The music was, I mean, we have the toy toy, we have the yes. signature tune, uh, yeah. uh, which I remember listening to in the 80s. Yeah. Very powerful, emotional yeah. sort of uh, tune. L let me speak to, you know, the signature tune first. Uh, you know, in most of the interviews, in fact, virtually all the interviews that I've, I've conducted, you know, the, the, the signal tune uh, comes first. You know, it's something that people remember the most because it, 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 it has, it has such, such power. It was very uh, emotional to listen to it. You have, you have the sound of an AK-47, which is, which is the first thing that you hear when the station uh, comes, you know, uh, comes on. That is, when you switch in and it's time for Radio Freedom, uh, you'd, you'd first of all maybe have two lines by the hosting radio stations, like uh, you, you have tuned into um, Voice of Ethiopia. Now, this is the program on Radio Freedom. And then you'd hear the sound of an AK-47, uh, followed by the call of Amandla and the response of Ngawait, which means power. And then the response Ngawait is to the people. And then immediately after that, the AK-47 goes again. And then it's followed by the singing of that tune, you know, uh, Go Well, Mighty Soldier. Hamba Gashem Kondu. Hamba, Hamba Gashem Kondu. Wem Kondu, Kondu, We Season. And then it goes, and on and on and on it goes. And this is a song that was very, very important in the struggle against apartheid. It was on. On, on, you know, on, as, as, as the, as the uh, freedom fighters would be coming into the country, uh, trying to infiltrate the country, of course, they would be met by enemy forces and there would be engagement and some of them would be killed, they would kill on the other side. But this song would actually be sung in, you know, to pay tribute uh, to the fallen, uh, to the fallen uh, warriors. Uh, in these bushes where they'd actually fallen and they'd been buried there. So as a, as a, as a final uh, form of paying uh, tribute, you know, this song would be sung. And so the audiences back home in South Africa, of course, knew that. So, so much so that at political funerals, this song would also be sung in addition to Mkosi Sikelele, which is, uh, has become part of the national anthem of South Africa today. So, and then, and then you know, then they, they, there would be various speeches. Uh, such as the speeches by Oliver Tambo. Uh, Oliver Tambo, who was the, the president of the, of the ANC in exile. And, um, you know, and, and most importantly, one of the key speeches that were listened to by audiences back home uh, was the January the 8th statement, uh, where a program for the year would actually be laid out in that speech, and Oliver Tambo would tell people what that year was for and what sort of um, activities uh, should take place in the country. And this and was picked up in, inside South Africa inside, through the radio? Inside South Africa, people would, 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 would pick on those activities. Huddled around uh, yes. at night around the radio? Yeah, people would huddle around the radios at night, of course, you know, which clearly provided cover. Uh, but, but at night, you know, that's when some of the programs on Radio Freedom would be broadcast and in their secret spaces they would listen to this radio station. Huddling also, you know, uh, is important as a, as a concept here because 
uh, within the context of repressive South Africa, people always watching out because there were so many informers around. You couldn't play the radio loud. So you almost, it, it, had, it had to be very soft and people would have to huddle and listen to these messages. And at the same time, um, there would be a recording on, on, on audio cassettes, th these messages. And then, and then they would generate multiple copies, mm. tens and hundreds of copies, which would be disseminated to political activists elsewhere. And people would be listening to these political speeches. People would, listen, would be listening to freedom songs that were sung. They would be listening to slogans. And so they would, they would appropriate some of these elements and then use them in their own sort of mobilization within the country. In your talk earlier today about Radio Freedom, you mentioned that most of the broadcasts were in English, which of course is not the first language for the vast majority of the people right. in South Africa. Yeah. Um, how did listeners in South Africa in this kind of redistribution and reprocessing of the information use African languages? Okay. Uh, tell us a little bit about this form of right. African agency. Right, okay. Uh, that, that's a very interesting question. Well, I mean, let, let me just say, first of all, that I mean, uh, the, the reason why English was sort of a major language on Radio Freedom was, of course, because la English was seen as the language of liberation. So this was the language of the liberation struggle. Uh, and um, uh, virtually all sort of young people going to school, whether they were at high school or at university, would understand that medium. And of course, young people played a, a prominent role in the struggle for freedom in South Africa. But English also cut across the different ethnic groups. It brought different people together. So if you were to broadcast primarily in African languages, uh, there, are, there are nine major African languages in the country. So it means that you'd actually have to produce uh, different programs in nine, um, in nine uh, major African languages, which is undoable. So English, in a sense, you know, um, helped bring these uh, different groups together. But at the same time, there were those uh, people who were not going to school, the elderly people that were, yeah, were not literate in English and so forth and so forth. And what would happen in, in that context was, was that young activists who read, uh, understood English because of their schooling would, in the context where people were you know, gathered around these radio sets, uh, then, you know, be interpreting. They would serve as interpreters. As the speeches were being made, then they would translate into an African language, say, Kosa or, or Bedi, for, 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 for the locals uh, to hear what the message was all, was all about. But at the same time, there were certain programs that were in African languages. Mm. Uh, for example, in one of the uh, material that I have in my collection, there's a, there's, a, there's a talk, it's, in fact, it's an interview with Moses Mabida, who was one of the prominent leaders of the ANC, who was talking about, you know, the, the whole Ingwavuma uh, mm. story mm. about the territory, Swaziland. whether it, it should be part of Swaziland, whether it should be part of South Africa and so forth. It was, it was a tricky situation there. And so, you know, um, uh, Moses Mabida is talking, is talking about that issue and, and giving a, it's kind of the ANC perspective on that. There are attempts with other languages as well, and there are some programs in Sesotho, in Venda, and so forth. But most importantly, Afrikaans was also incorporated. So some programming was in Afrikaans, of course, uh, realizing that, um, you know, Afrikaans is also spoken by black people. 
in South Africa, the Colors, especially in the Eastern Cape, who were an important constituency, people that were being mobilized. So, you know, um, Africans also became a language. So the, there is a key document, it's actually a report, I think around 1973, uh, which, the, uh, which, which was actually written around, around radio and how radio is, uh, he is being used and how it should be used, sort of the successes and failure of the radio, and these issues of language, the issue of you know, Africans, the issue, you know, various issues are, are actually coming up. Um, you know, including programs around women, uh, you know, the issues of, uh, of, 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 of reproduction, reproductive health, but also programs around, you know, the whole issues of women and domesticity. And of course, this is, a, this is the time when the, the ANC is uh, in, in, in fighting for uh, national liberation is also becoming sensitive to issues of, of gender equality and so forth. And so these are, these are among some of the issues that are, are, are covered in programming. But, but one should not make too much of a point here, make too much of this point about you know, gender equality and so forth. Because in my own kind of discussions with some of the informants or, or interviewees, they are actually saying that, um, look, I mean, at the time, really the, the, the primary issue was national liberation. So, in as much as you know, these issues of uh, gender equality were on the agenda, uh, they, they, were, they were not primary issues. And not much was done, was done about those issues. And in fact, if you look at the practice of the ANC itself, uh, it, 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 it didn't really, this was a, this was a lost opportunity, uh, to put it shortly. Uh, it, it's, it's something more could have actually been done. But in, in the struggle where the primary thing was seen as national liberation, mm -hmm. not much emphasis was, was actually placed on these other issues. And uh, maybe to uh, uh, bring the discussion to a close, we c uh, it strikes me that both in terms of um, Radio Bantu and Radio Freedom, the, um, the announcers were acting uh, much like intermediaries. Uh, and another of your interests, uh, your new research is on the history of African research assistants or interpreters. Right. And you gave an excellent paper at the conference, uh, the biennial conference of the Southern African Historical Society in Khabarone in Botswana this year on this matter. And you've also written recently um, on the African interpreters of the anthropologist uh, Monica Wilson. Um, Clearly, this is a relatively neglected history. Could you speak uh, yes. to, to this issue of the importance or the significance yeah. of these underestimated people? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you actually raised uh, that question uh, because, in as much as you know, this is this is this is kind of a new field uh, for me, but it's also an old field. I mean, I remember actually writing a paper um, in my when I was doing a, a PhD thesis at the University of, well, when I was doing PhD studies, long before I actually did research, uh, st still doing coursework, I remember writing a paper on, on anthropology and, and, and the place of anthropology for someone who's doing African history. And uh, so from the very beginning, I actually recognized the importance of ant anthropology uh, and anthropological work as an important resource for historians to use. 
And one of, one of the papers that I've, I've, I've actually published, in fact, one of my first publications on this you know, interesting relationship between uh, white anthropologists and African research assistants uh, is a paper which I published uh, in the Journal of African History on um, a, a government-employed uh, anthropologist, Dr. N.J. Van Varmelo, mm. who was the chief ethnologist in the uh, Native Affairs Department. And so I looked at um, uh, his, his relationship uh, with, with his African research assistants. And in this particular case, I'm actually focusing on uh, how his, his work was profoundly shaped by um, by not only the you know the, the the respondents, the people from whom these stories were collected, but actually the research assistants themselves, uh, because there are key intermediaries here, mm. and so and I'm I'm following sort of uh, Lynn Schumacher's work on the notion of the co-production of cultural knowledge, and so that that's where my my work is coming from. And, and, and I'm saying, I'm saying, in fact, in, 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 in the various areas that are, whether I'm looking at the, you know, the, the Tanzanian research assistants or, 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 or of Monica the, Wilson, of Monica Wilson, yeah. or the research assistants of um, uh, Shapera, Isaac Shapera in, in colonial Botswana, mm. or the assistants of uh, N.J. Van Varmelo in South Africa. I'm saying that ultimately, these research assistants played a key role, uh, even though their lives, even though we know so little about them. Uh, because ultimately, when an article or a book is actually published, uh, you know, those research assistants would be acknowledged in prefaces and so forth, but that's as far as it goes. Uh, so they never really, one never really gets a sense of the entirety of the lives of these people, who these people are, you know, what, um, what their life trajectories have been, you know, what, what were their objectives, what were their objectives in, you know, choosing to work as research assistants and so forth. And in some instances, we actually find that those people had in any case been writing long before they met these anthropologists. In some instances, uh, they are working with anthropologists actually make them even more interested and they end up coming into their own. So essentially my work is, is about putting these people on the map and actually for them to be recognized as scholars in their own right and for them to be celebrated in the same way that we celebrate uh, anthropologists when they've uh, written their, their manuscripts. And I feel you know, that, that, that that's an important project. That's an area that we need to write about more and more. Exactly. Well, thank you very much uh, for talking to Africa past uh, and present, Dr. Sakiba Peter Lekwati. Uh, thanks very much. Much appreciated. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afropod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, 
www.aodl.org. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcaster sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. Yeah.